But today we are still in the Psalms. And if you will look, the title of this Psalm is The King of Glory. That is the least original title I've ever come up with for a sermon because you guys will probably look and see in your Bibles that's exactly what the translators have named the chapter in your Bibles. But it's important, and it's especially important because we are going to see in this psalm uh, the people of Israel lifting up God and giving him glory. But glory is sometimes a difficult word for us to define. Now, we may be able to, to sing of it, and we do often in church. You may say it often. It's through the Bible a lot, so we read it often. But if someone were to ask you to give a definition of what glory is, I, I at least struggled when I thought of that this week. Maybe, maybe you struggle with that as well. So I was just thinking, what are some, if it's hard to put into words, what are some pictures, what are some examples that we can think of that are going to help us to understand what this glory is, really is, what it is talking about. Our passage is going to give us the image of a, of a king returning to his city after a great victory in battle. A kind of a modern example of this, if, if you guys have ever watched the, the Super Bowl winning team as they go to their city, after they've won, the city usually gives them a, a huge parade. There are people cheering everywhere. There's music. Maybe even a band is marching, and they're just being paraded through the city, and they are all celebrating their great accomplishment. <clears throat> another good example, another sports example, is something we probably all watched at least once in the, in the past couple of weeks, and that is the medal ceremony at the Olympics. I mean, that is a moment of glory where the, the winner of whatever athletic competition is put on a pedestal in front of everyone. They're given a very shiny piece of hardware to wear, and they are decked out in their nation's flag. Sometimes, actually, it's draped around them. If not, they'll actually have a suit that looks like their flag, and their national anthem will play. And in most Olympics, not this one, there will also be fans cheering in the stands as well. Those are all examples of just glorious moments for human beings, but those are also earthly and human examples of glory. What we are talking about here is God's glory. So multiply what we can imagine about a, a glorious moment or giving glory to someone and multiply it by infinity, and that is the glory of God. Let's read our text this morning, Psalm chapter 24, beginning in verse 1. The earth is the Lord's and the fullness thereof, the world and those who dwell therein. For he has founded it upon the seas and established it upon the rivers. Who shall ascend the hill of the Lord and who shall stand in his holy place? He who has clean hands and a pure heart, who does not lift up his soul to what is false and does not swear deceitfully, he will receive blessing from the Lord and righteousness from the God of his salvation. Such is the generation of those who seek him, who seek the face of the God of Jacob." 
Lift up your heads, O gates, and be lifted up, O ancient doors, that the King of glory may come in. Who is this King of glory? The Lord strong and mighty. The Lord mighty in battle. Lift up your heads, O gates, and lift them up, O ancient doors, that the King of glory may come in. Who is this King of glory? The Lord of hosts. He is the King of glory. Let's pray. Oh, Father God, we thank you so very much for your word. We thank you that you have preserved for us throughout the generations the pages that you inspired men to write down and you have kept them for us even now so many thousands of years later so that we may know who you are. So that we may know who you are and so that we may know what you have done and so that we may honor and glorify you above all else. Father, this morning I pray that you would help us to hear your words, to understand this psalm and that we would honor and glorify you because of it. Father, I pray that you would speak through me, that my words would not be uh, my own, but they would be yours this morning. And it's in Christ's name that we pray. Amen. Now we often, in fact all the time, when we look at a passage of scripture, we should always be asking some context questions. We should always be looking and saying, why Why was this written? Why did God want this recorded? Why did he have this particular person write this down at this time? But we also know, especially as we've been going through the Psalms, that we don't actually always get that information. This Psalm is not an exception to that. All we have as far as why this Psalm was written or, or at what time period, we just know it was written by David. At the very top, it will say, a Psalm of David. So that gives us kind of an idea. In fact, some people think that this was a psalm that was sung while David was bringing the ark into the city of Jerusalem. Others, scholars, think that it was uh, sung at the first day of the week, so the day after the Sabbath on Sunday. And still others would just say that it was, it was sung at a time where the, the king and maybe even the ark of the covenant had been out at battle and they were victorious and they came back into the city. Those are important questions to ask, and those are important to see those different ideas, but really what we need to do to understand this passage is to realize that this passage in its entirety is teaching us that God is the creator. He is the holy and mighty king of everything, and yet he chooses to live and to dwell among people. God is the creator, holy and mighty, yet he chooses to dwell among his people. And now we see this, and if you, if you look at your Bible, you probably have three paragraphs, and that is gonna, those are gonna be our three points for this morning, and we'll see that God, we'll see God's rule, and we'll see God's people, and lastly, we will see God's presence. But first, let's look at God's rule. Look at verse one with me. The earth is the Lord's, and the fullness thereof, the world and those who dwell therein. The people of Israel were to sing this psalm and they were to acknowledge 
that the feet beneath their ground, that the city that they may have been walking into, that the fields that they planted, that the animals that they tended and the animals in the wild, the, the mountains and the oceans, they were acknowledging that they belonged to God, that God owned them and God ruled over them. But not only all of creation, it says, and those who dwell therein. The people of Israel, as they sung this, as they would shout this aloud, they would be acknowledging that God not only owned all of creation, but he also owned them. They were his people. They belonged to him. Now, this was also written at the time where God had selected Israel to be his special people, to be his covenant people. But it's interesting, if you look at this passage, it does not say the earth is the Lord's and the fullness thereof, the world and the Israelites who dwell therein. It says the world and those who dwell therein. The people of Israel, just like us, need to realize that each and every human being that is on this planet and has ever been on this planet is God's. They are his. But not only are they his, they, he gives us a reason why. In verse 2 it says, For he has founded it upon the seas and established it upon the rivers. All of creation, all of humanity belongs to God because we were made by him. Because creation was made by him. God spoke and the heavens and the earth came into being. He spoke and the, the oceans filled with living creatures. He spoke and he formed man out of the dry ground. Now, if we're being honest, for us, it is, it's really easy for us to, to look at this passage, to look at creation and say, yeah, I, I'm fully behind the fact that God owns all of creation. He owns everything. That's cool. But when we get to the point where it says that we belong to him, that's when we have some trouble. We can struggle sometimes with the, the thought that we belong to God. I have something that may help us with that. And in fact, the kids in the audience might actually, or in the congregation, might be able to help us. So kids, look at me real quick. How many of you have ever been doing the wrong thing or maybe just being a general nuisance to your parents and maybe your mother has said, I brought you into this world, I can take you out of it? <laughs> Any of you? All right, I may be alone, but my mother told me that all the time when I was growing up, okay? Now, it's not quite the same because, you know, God is the one who creates us, but your mother did grow you in her belly for a while. And so she has authority over you. It is very similar, but even more so with God. God created us. God formed us in our mother's wombs, and therefore he has authority over us. And I'm going to make it a little harder for us. Because we, we know that God, if we can grasp that God, we are God's, we are his because we are his creatures. We know that 
from Genesis 1 that God formed all of us and he made humanity to be his special creation, that we were made in his image. That means we need to treat one another like we are all made in his image. Now, in some, in some ways, that can be really easy for us today to treat others as, as though they are God's creation. And in fact, for, for most of us, uh, it's really easy to know that we, we need to protect life. We need to protect human life. It's really easy for us to say those who are in their mother's wombs must be protected. They must be treated as God's creation, God's special people. And yes, we should do that, and we should do it with all of our strength and all of our hearts. We should do the same. Those who are elderly, they are God's special creation. They are God's special creatures. He has made them in his image, and they should be treated with dignity and respect because of that. What's hard is that we also need to do that to those who are our enemies, We also need to do that with people who disagree with us. We also need to do that with those who may even claim to hate us. We need to do that with people who have a particular brand of sin that may shock us. Remember what Jesus said in Matthew chapter 5. But I say to you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you so that you may be sons of your Father who is in heaven. For he makes the sun rise on the evil and on the good and sends rain on the just and the unjust. Jesus also told us that all authority in heaven and on earth had been given to him. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations. Christians, we cannot, we cannot treat anyone like they are less than a creature and an image bearer of our great God and creator. That includes with our actions, but includes our words, and it includes even the words that we type out on a phone or on a computer. It's really easy in those situations to think that the person on the other side It's just a computer or something like that, or they're somehow less than human, but they are not. They are God's creation. They are God's image bearers, and we need to treat them as such. Now, that doesn't mean that we just automatically assume because every single person is created in God's image that all are God's people. There is a distinction between God's people and the rest of humanity. Verse 3 says, Who shall ascend the hill of the Lord, and who shall stand in his holy place? This verse is essentially asking twice, one of the most important questions, in fact, the most important question that we could ever ask of ourselves, who gets to be in a relationship with God? Who gets to be in his presence? 
This is what we were created for. We were created to be in God's presence, to worship him and glorify him in this life and for all of eternity. And so the crucial question we have to ask ourselves is, who gets to be there? Well, the passage answers it for us. He says, he who has clean hands and a pure heart, who does not lift up his soul to what is false and does not swear deceitfully. In those verses, you will see, in that verse, you will see that there is no ethnic requirement. Remember, we are talking about Israel. We are talking about his special covenant people there. But even though there is special covenant people the requirements for being in the presence of God, for having a relationship with him, has nothing to do with where you were born or who you were born to, but it has everything to do with holiness. God is holy, and therefore his people will be holy. And they will be holy, in this verse you will see, in their actions, those who have clean hands, in their heart, a pure heart, in their desires, who does not lift up his soul to what is false, and in their words, who does not swear deceitfully. See, we as human beings, once we acknowledge that God is God and we are not, we can fall into to two different camps of really kind of messing up how we are supposed to be one of his people. One of the ways that we can mess this up is just the way the Pharisees did by thinking that if we clean our actions up, that if we clean our outside, if we clean our words up, then that will be good enough. Jesus speaks very seriously against this in Matthew 23 when he says, woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you are like whitewashed tombs which outwardly appear beautiful, but within are full of dead people's bones and all uncleanness. So you all outwardly appear righteous to others, but within you are full of hypocrisy and lawlessness. Cleaning up the, the actions and the words and the things that we portray to others does nothing for our souls and it does nothing to make us have a relationship with our God and Father. But the other thing that we can fall into is just thinking that, oh, we can say we believe something and we can acknowledge it but then have no actions, no outworking of that. James warns against this when he says, but be doers of the word and not hearers only, deceiving yourselves. For if anyone is a hearer of the word and not a doer, he is like a man who looks intently at his natural face in a mirror. For he looks at himself and goes away and at once forgets what he was like. See, the Bible never once takes apart the heart and the actions. We often want to take those things apart and we want to say, well, yeah, I can believe the right things, but then I can go off and do what I want, or I can just make myself a little bit better and then God will accept me. It is neither of those, and yet it is both of those. We must have hearts that are changed, and we must have fruit of that in our lives. We must have actions that are fruit of the inward change in our lives. Now, if you're hearing me and you're listening to this and you're looking at these holy requirements, you may be thinking, I don't have clean hands. I don't have a pure heart. 
I often lift up my soul. I often desire earthly things, worldly things, and things that aren't what matters most. And the words in my mouth are not always what they should be. Join the club. That's all of us. But the passage isn't saying that we can get that way on our own. Look at verse six. He will receive blessing from the Lord and righteousness from the God of his salvation. What do people do in that verse? Zero. We receive a blessing from the Lord. The Lord gives the blessing. Righteousness comes from God and salvation comes from God. Each and every one of us should look at the holy requirements in verse four and say, I can't do it. I can't do it. I'm unable. Thankfully, there is one who was able. Jesus Christ, our Lord and Savior. He had clean hands. He had a pure heart. He never lifted up his soul to what was false and he never swore deceitfully. And he, God the Son, is the one who, being absolutely perfect in every single way, went to the cross and died for those of us who cannot follow what verse 4 says. He died and he put, poured out his life so that those who put their faith and trust in him can stand in the holy presence of God. Church, listen to me. Jesus is the only way that any of us will be able to have a relationship with the God who made us. He is the only way that we can not only stand in his presence now on earth, but we can stand in his presence for all of eternity. And hear me, if you go to your grave or Jesus returns and you're trusting in your own abilities, then you will be sent away and condemned for all of eternity. But if you put your faith and trust in Jesus, you will be with him and you will be in his presence for all of eternity. Our last point, lift up your heads, O gates, and be lifted up, O ancient doors, that the king of glory may come in. God's presence is with his people. We need to realize that the, that the wonder of this psalm is that the people who are imperfect, the people who need to receive blessing and righteousness, not from themselves, but from God, who need to be saved by God himself, those are the same people that God chooses to dwell with. God desires to dwell among his people. It's not something his people deserve. It's not something we deserve now. It's not something that Israel deserved then. But it is the blessing of God that he is with his people, that he dwells with him, that he lives with them. This psalm is somewhat of a prophecy as well because as we look and we think of, of the Lord coming and entering in to the city, which it's 
quite obviously talking about Jerusalem at this point, that they're, they're going into the city, they're going through the gates, they're going through the doors. We ought to think that this literally physically happened at one point. Remember, we read earlier the triumphal entry. And the triumphal entry was a, a fulfillment of the prophecy quoted in that passage from Zechariah 9.9 that said, Rejoice greatly, daughter Zion. Shout in, tri in triumph, daughter Jerusalem. Look, your king is coming to you. He is righteous and victorious, humble and riding on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a donkey. But if you also listened as Mr. Robert read that, at the very end of it, they, they missed it. They missed it. They said, who is this? They said, oh, he's, he's a prophet. He's a prophet. And yet, yes, Jesus was a prophet. But they missed it because it was their king coming to them. And no, the king didn't come defeating Rome as they wanted him to, but he did come and he did defeat sin and death, the real enemy. He came and defeated through his shed blood Satan and all of the power of evil when he poured out his life on the cross. He proved himself the strong and mighty warrior, strong and mighty in battle. He proved himself to be the Lord of hosts in his death and in his resurrection. Our Savior, Jesus Christ, is the King of glory. And he has promised for those who would put their faith and trust in him that he would dwell with them in their hearts now and dwell with them for eternity in heaven. Let's not miss it. Let's not miss our king, our mighty creator. Let's not miss it like Israel did. We have the full revelation of God here. Israel did not, and they missed it. We know 100% that Jesus is the Messiah. He is the Savior. He is the one through whom we can have righteousness. He is the one through whom we have salvation, and he is the only one through whom we can have a relationship with our God and creator. 1 Timothy 1.15 says, The saying is trustworthy and deserving of full acceptance, that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners. Respond to the call of the King of glory. Respond to the call of of Jesus Christ, your Lord and Savior, who says this, behold, I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come into him and eat with him and he with me. Trust in Jesus and Jesus alone for your salvation and for the redemption of your sins and you will be with him forever. Let's pray. Oh, Father God, we...